When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ah, fish and chips. Have it with gravy, with a side of mushy peas, yes, smother it in tartar sauce or curry sauce. No matter how you enjoy your fish and chips, you can't deny it how unbelievably British the dish is. But have you ever thought about how Britain's favourite fast food came to be? Why have fish and chips become such a staple of British culture? You might think it's because we're a nation surrounded by the sea, so fish being a staple to your diet just makes sense. Or maybe it's because fish and chips are such a calorie-dense meal. It was cheap an effective way to fuel the working class. But the history of the humble fish and chip is so much more complex than that. And what you might find truly shocking is that fish and chips aren't actually British at all. Hello, welcome to Patented. It's a podcast about the history of inventions from History Hit with me, Dallas Campbell. You're very welcome and thank you very much for your company. Today we're exploring the invention of fish and chips. Now prepare yourself. You don't need to prepare yourself that much but if I were you I would start walking to your local fish and chip shop now because by the end of this episode I guarantee you'll want fish and chips for lunch or dinner probably. Now I didn't know that such a person existed but on today's episode I'm joined by an expert on the history of fish and chips. It's Panikos Panayi. He's a professor at De Montford University in Leicester, and he works on the social history of food, immigration, and inter-ethnic relations. And it's really interesting how food is a really good lens for better understanding social history. And today he's telling us about the invention of fish and chips. What came first, the fish or the chip. We're going to hear about the origins of fish and chips, why the fish is covered in batter in the first place, and why fish and chips became a staple of the working class. Most importantly, we're getting to the bottom of who invented fish and chips in the first place. Why is it known as the bedrock, the symbol of British culture today? Someone interview and say they didn't like fish and chips. 
Well, they said it at the end, yeah. It was on a food podcast called Gastropod. Oh, I think I know. Who does that? Who does Gastropod? It was from America. There was a British woman and an American woman in... The American woman said at the end she doesn't like it. <laughs> I've never met anyone who doesn't like How could you not like it? Well, lots of people. I know really? people who don't like fish and chips. Well, I can imagine people don't like it because it may be unhealthy or they maybe they're trying to lose weight or something. But like secretly, everyone likes fish. Well, she said that something that people have told me that it's oily and, you know, you can taste the oil afterwards. That's what she said. And I've heard other people say that. Yeah. I suppose it depends who makes it. I had fish and chips the other day up in Scotland. And it wasn't very good. Like, I don't know, the batter was kind of weird. And it just, I think it's harder than it looks maybe to make it really yeah, good. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Yeah. Anyway, first of all, before we even start anything, why am I interviewing you? How on earth did you get involved in being interviewed about fish and chips? So my main research area is migration, the history of migration. So nobody writes about the connection between food and migration. And so one of the things that is created by Jewish migrants is fish and chips. So I did a book on spicing up Britain, the multicultural history of British food. Right. And the publisher asked me to do a follow-up book about fish and chips. And he does a series called Edible, which is really short books, but I did a slightly longer book. Ah. So he published it as a self-standing book. Great. When you say it like that, of course, we think, well, Indian food, okay. Chinese food, okay. Greek food, all all kinds of things. But fish and chips is so clearly cemented in our mind. Yeah. You know, if someone says, well, what is the kind of national British dish? And I go, well, I don't know, chicken tikka masala. But then you have to kind of, you know, fish and chips. But that's not, obviously... I mean, we're a nation of migrants, so how do we even start telling the story? Do we break it down into its component parts and talk about, okay, where does the fish bit and where does the chip bit come from? And then where do they come together? Is that a useful place to go? And then you can talk about Jewish migrants. Well, they might come up a bit earlier, but anyway. (laughs) Or whatever whatever you want. Okay, fish and chips, the most British thing ever. You know, picture of Winston Churchill, picture of Big Ben, picture of fish and chips. Not, well... The idea of fried fish first. Let's go with that. Well, a fried fish seems to be Jewish and it seems to be very difficult. Or fried fish in a batter seems to be Jewish and it's very difficult to um, move away from that because there's a recipe going back to 1544 from Sephardic Jew uh, in in England. It's fish coated with egg and then fried in breadcrumbs. So that seems to be one of the earliest recipes. And then when you get into cookbooks in the 18th and early 19th centuries, they actually talk about fried fish in the Jewish style. Ah, that's interesting. So one of them is quite a famous, one of the most famous 18th century cookbooks. Hannah Glass. Her recipe actually then involves placing the fried fish in batter in oil in order to preserve it. And then you have another recipe from the early 19th century from a quite famous chef, Alexis Soyer. And he also talks about fried fish in the Jewish style, which is also battered. So that's certainly been established by the early 19th century. So the book that I wrote about fish and chips, when I was doing the research. So we have something called the British Newspaper Archive, which <laughs> never existed when I was younger, but you can do a keyword search of all newspapers in England. So when I did fried fish, one of the stories which often came up was Jewish fish fryers whose property had burnt down because something had gone wrong in the early 19th century. So that sort of 
completely cemented the idea of fried fish being of Jewish origin, because in a sense, that was where fried fish as a keyword led me to. So, I mean, from that point of view, it just seems indisputable. And what happens is it moves from the Jewish population of the East End of London to the wider population when the railways take off. Because before the railways, very few people eat fresh fish. When the railways take off, I think I was reading somewhere the other day that nowhere in Britain is more than 84 miles from the coast, probably as the crow flies. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, once the railways take off, you know, everyone can have fresh fish within two hours. When we say it's fried fish being a Jewish thing, was it British Jews as opposed to Jews anywhere else? That we, or, or were there Jews elsewhere in the world that were also doing this? Or is it the fact that we're in Britain, we're an island, and as you say, fish has always been on the menu, as it were? No, I mean, I don't think it is just a British-Jewish thing. I mean, what the uniqueness about Britain, I guess, is the coastal thing and the fact that, you know, it can move because of the speed that which you can get fresh fish once the railways take off. But the person who wrote the recipe in 1544, where well, he was actually a Portuguese Jew in England, Murano, but... If you look at German Jewish recipes in the 19th century, I mean, fried fish features in those as well. And the origin of this fried fish in batter is that you fry your fish on Friday and therefore you don't have to cook on the Sabbath and it preserves the fish. I mean, I have to say, I've never tried <laughs> cold no fried fish. No one's ever fish. tried that. Well, the thing is, everyone always says, oh, yes, the batter is there as a kind of coating. You can take the batter off and throw it away. And well, you can do that, yeah. That's nonsense because everyone just eats the batter because that's the best bit. Clearly. Okay, so that's fish, British Jews, battered fish. Chips. I'm instantly transported back to Walter Raleigh and potatoes and that scene in Blackadder where he stands in front of Queen Elizabeth with a potato. I mean, the country where potatoes are eaten first and in the largest quantities is Ireland, hence the potato famine uh, in the 1840s. In mainland Britain, it doesn't really take off until the early 19th century. And that's to do with an increase in grain as a result of the Napoleonic Wars. And the actual frying, again, at the end of the 18th century, the concept of French fries evolves. And somehow that makes a transition to Britain. So you do have recipes in cookbooks for French fries. And they seem to take off in Britain in the second half of the 19th century. So I've been trying for years to find a French <laughs> friar who serves, you know, French fries, but I've never managed well, to do this. I always think of it as kind of Northern European. Like I always think of the Belgians and yeah. maybe the Dutch even. With Jews, you can find this connection uh, yeah. in a lot of sources. And I'm doing a lot of work now on immigration in 19th century Britain. And I've found lots of stuff about French people and French people in catering, but I've never <laughs> found yeah. the French fried fryer. It's there somewhere. I'm just looking at a whole load of vintage cookbooks. I'm going to have a little look at. I'm going to have a look at all this stuff. Okay, so we've got. There's a bit of mystery around French fries. Was there a eureka moment? Tell me there was, where someone went. You know what would be really good with that bit of battered fried Jewish fish? Some of those Belgian French fries. 
you mean when the two came together? Yeah. So Magic happened. in the middle of the 1960s, the National Federation of Fish Friars. Hang on. Wait, what's the National Federation? There's a union. Wait, they got organized. Yeah, this has been in existence since the beginning of the 20th century. This is the official authority for fish and chips, basically. Oh, imagine their annual meeting. Do they kind of like have very serious minutes about, oh, you can't fry your fish like this? And- I'm not sure they do. I've been to their headquarters to oh, do some okay. research. And the day okay. I went, there was a fish frying class. So I got some nice fresh. Nice. And chips. Uh, okay, so the National Federation of Fish Fryers. Okay. So in the middle of the 1960s, they carried out a competition or an investigation to discover when the first fish and chip shop came into existence. And so they came to the conclusion that it was Malins in Old Ford Road, which no longer exists. Which city are we in? Uh, east End of London. In the East End, okay. And it no longer exists, but it did exist until the 1970s or 1980s. Ah, And so they claim they carried out a thorough investigation to discover when the first fish and chip shop, that was the competition. And that's the conclusion that they came to. So that was 1860. So if there's a eureka moment, then that's it. But it's all done retrospectively from the point of view of the National Federation of Fish Fries. Did the concept of takeaway food places exist at the time or was that Malins and Old Ford Road did they also invent the first takeaway you know so I think what tended to happen so one of the sources which you have to read if you want to understand Victorian London is Henry Mayhew so he's basically the first social investigator who talks to working class people so what he discovers is lots of people selling all sorts of stuff on the streets so one of the most disgusting is (laughs) which you'll have to imagine is reused tea bags but anyway reuse tea bags for what purpose (laughs) well (laughs) so that somebody can use them the second time round. hey listen times (laughs) are hard at the moment i'm going to cash in on that reuse tea bags wow well, I suppose it was tea rather than tea bags. But anyway, so reused tea. Okay. But there's all sorts of other things, sandwiches. But one of the things that's sold on the street is fried fish. And so takeaway in the middle of the 19th century tends to be from itinerant sellers. And I think, I mean, I would say that the fish and chip shop or the fish and chip bar, if you think about it, I don't know if you use fish bars where you just go in and there's nowhere to sit. I would say that's the original British takeaway where you just go in, there's a counter and that's invented by the fish and chip trade. And if you think about it, when Chinese and Indian takeaways develop from the 1960s onwards, they just develop the same model. So that sort of fish bar is a late 19th, early 20th century phenomenon. I'm James Patton Rogers, a war historian, advisor to the UN and NATO, and host of the Warfare Podcast from History Hit. Join me twice a week, every week, as we look at the conflicts that have defined our past and the ones shaping our future. We talk to award-winning journalists. ISIS, this peculiar strain that we all came to know very well in the mid-2010s, really got its start because of the US invasion of Iraq. 
we hear from the people who were actually there. The Sudanese have been incredible. They have managed to get supplies to people, to individuals who are suffering. And we learn from the remarkable historians shining a light on forgotten histories. For the most part, the millions of people who were taken to those camps were immediately murdered. Auschwitz combined the functions of death camp and concentration camp and slave labor. Join us on the Warfare Podcast from History Hits twice a week, every week, wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is, might be a stupid question. A few years ago, I dug up my patio because I was relaying a patio in my house. And at the time, I was living in East London. I didn't find a dead body or anything, or <laughs> kind of like a Cray twin, or, you know, mad Frankie Fraze or something. But um, I tell you what I did find. As I was pulling up the flagstones, they'd laid them on a, a layer of hardcore, but that hardcore was just oyster shells, just like loads and loads of oyster shells. And I'm like, what? That's so weird. Like, why have they. And, and I asked somebody, I asked a builder, he said, oh, apparently in the East End in, you know, donkeys years ago, that was the kind of snack. That was the kind of packet of crisps or at the Mars bar. People would just eat oysters and the shells would just be used. So you just find all these oyster shells. I'm wondering if you'd come across that before. Mayhew's got a wonderful description of an oyster seller who he interviews. And one of the things he talks about is, so he's been injured because of the complexity of, you know, opening the shells, you know, without cutting yourself. So, yeah, yeah I mean, hard. you're absolutely right. It's a really widespread street food uh, yes, in the exactly. 19th century. Just like cheap, and, uh, cheap street food. Exactly. Yeah. It was it was much cheaper than it is today. I mean, it wasn't an aristocratic food. That's an interesting thing. You know, if it's an East End working class food, why is it specifically a working class food? Like, what was it about it that the working class had the thing to eat? You mean with regards to fish and chips? Yeah, with regards to fish and chips. Like, fish is expensive. 
Well, maybe it was cheaper then. Yeah, but it wasn't as expensive, you know, when it takes off because various things had happened which made cod much cheaper, which is the development of ice, the development of trawler fishing and the railway, of course. So when it takes off, it's probably cheaper than it's ever been. Yeah. So I think one of the things I always say is it offers a lot of calories and nutrition because today it's associated with bad health. I mean, if you're a coal miner, (laughs) then you probably need several (laughs) servings of fish and chips a day. (laughs) But also it's fat, it's carbohydrate, and it's salt. Exactly. So you can understand why everyone goes crazy for it. It's just that absolute everything you want. You've given us this lovely little introduction. I'm in the East End. When did it become this great symbol of Britain or this great sort of symbol of empire, I suppose? When did it become our national dish? Uh, Right. So in a sense, it becomes British because it becomes one of the most popular foods by 1930 at the latest in the sense that every member of the British population eats it at least once a week, according to research that was carried out at the time. Whether people perceive it as British at that time is a different issue. And my argument is that it becomes British or it's marketed as British from the 1960s onwards when Indian and Chinese food uh, takes Ah. off. And so the National Federation of Fish Fryers starts a propaganda campaign, I guess is what you call it, saying, you know, this is what is British food because, you know, food is ethnicized, if you like, after the Second World War. Can I just double check with you? Because I think there is some debate about this. You're saying that fish and chips originated as a London thing? Because I know there's other people who say, oh, no, it's a northern thing. It's from Lancashire and places like this. Are you pretty convinced that London has that status? Yes, because of the Jewish fried fish. And I mean, the main concentration of Jews in Britain, historically, they emanate from the east end of London. So there is provincial juries. The other reason is because of the survey that the National Federation of Fish Fries carried out in the middle of the 1960s. We have data. That, actually, that name you mentioned, that East End Fish Fryer, Malin, is that how it pronounces it? Joseph Malin. If we're going to call him Fish and Chips 1.0, do we know much about him, like who he was and what his background was? Not very much more than his Jewish ethnicity, yeah. although the person who received the award from the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food in 1967 was one of his descendants. Oh, okay. Okay. I just kind of think if you invent something that important, like, you know, the printing press, you know who did it. Yeah, but he wouldn't have conceived it at the time, I guess. Well, just the fact that he opened the first fish and chip bar that, you know, that we would recognise. That's quite an achievement. You mentioned Indian and Chinese food. So we're moving into the 1960s and there's this push to promote, to market fish and chips as a British thing. Was that as a direct result because you had mass immigration in the 1960s? Lots and lots of Indian and particularly Chinese restaurants. And a lot of those restaurants did start doing fish and chips as well as Chinese food or Chinese inspired food. So one of my arguments is it's a Jewish immigrant food, but migrants have played a fundamental role in the fish and chip trade as a whole. So if you look at the development of fish and chips in Ireland, Scotland and Wales, what you'd find is that a lot of the fish fryers were Italians 
And there's one person, Joe Pierre, who's written three books about the fish and chip shop that he ran in Glasgow in the early 20th century. Well, lots of Italians in Glasgow. Yeah. Obviously, ice cream as well is from the Glasgow Italians. Yeah. yeah, ice cream as well. Yeah. But they're really important in fish and chips. And his argument is, you know, if you think about the history of catering in Britain, it's largely created by migrants. So you've just mentioned ice cream. If you go to a restaurant in London in 1900, it will be staffed by Germans, French, Swiss, and Italians. Well, yeah, go into Soho and that's what exactly, it is. You know, it's, exactly. It's exactly that. It's French, it's Germans, it's exactly. uh, Italians. And this applies to the fish and chip shop as well. So in the interwar years, lots of Jews owned fish and chip shops. So the community I come from, Greek Cypriots, they're really prominent in the fish and chip trade after the Second World War. So when I first moved to Leicester 30 years ago, virtually all the fish bars were <laughs> were owned by Greek Cypriots. Okay. And I don't know who your fish and chips man is, but I bet he's not a white British. The one thing I have noticed about fish and chips, given that it's popularity in the UK, if you think about burger restaurants and fried chicken restaurants, suddenly you get all these massive chains opening up, American-dominated, obviously, burger restaurants. We never saw that with fish and chips. We're like, why did it... I mean, there was Harry Ramsden, I remember, which was a fish and chip chain, but I don't think that exists anymore. Why did it never kind of catch on in that kind of big brand sense? Why did no one export fish and chips around the world? You don't really get it in America. You get some, but it's not like a thing. I mean, there have been attempts throughout, you know, when I did my research, there were several attempts to do this and probably Harry Ramsden's was the biggest, but, you know, most successful chains never have more than a few dozen outlets. Fish and chips just seems to be an important space for self-employment, you know, because you have the independent fish and chip trader and then, you know, it's the restaurant as a whole is a really important way in which self-employed people make it, if you like. And, and when, you know, some research that was done throughout the 20th century suggests that the fish and chip shop owner just loves his independence. Mm-hmm. You know, despite That's the long hours that yeah. he has to put in. I mean, it's often a family business and often goes from one generation to the next. When was kind of fish and chips at its height? When was the kind of zenith of its popularity? Probably between about 1900 and 1960. Right. So at its height, right at the beginning of the 20th century, there's about 25,000 fish and chip shops. How many are there now? Uh, about 8,000. 8,000? Yeah, I don't know. It seems to be in a decline. I, yeah, you don't yeah, often yeah. bump into a fish and chip. I mean, I live in central London, so it's probably not the best. I mean, there's everything here, all kinds of things, but there's <laughs> no. not many fish and chip shops. However, I live in Clerkenwell, the Friar's Delight, which is on Theobald's Road. Oh, yeah. It's my yeah. local fish and chip shop. Is it? It's okay. really good. It's really I've good. never tried it. It's really good. Okay. And it's partly because it looks old school. It's proper. It's like the old-fashioned 1960s fish bar and it's terrific. Well, there are a few in Leicester, actually, in Leicestershire. I mean, the one I use near the one near the Friars Delight is North Sea Fish Bar, which is just around the corner from the Friars Delight, I think. Oh, is it? Where is that? Well, it's, if you come out of St Pancras and you walk south near where the University of London Pools of Residence are. Okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I'm going to go there tonight, in your honour, and go there. I was thinking about fish and chips all day today. Thinking I'm going to go to the Friars Delight today and go and get fish and chips. Okay, now you've had a lesson in doing this from the horse's mouth, as it were. Okay, let's start with the fish. What is the best fish for fish and chips? Is it cod? Is it haddock? Or does it not matter? Well, the friar who I know in Leicester 
again, he's a Greek Cypriot. He said haddock because it's firmer than cod. So that was his view. Um, and I was speaking to somebody the other day who also said that if you have haddock, it's more likely to be fresh than cod. Traditionally, you, you always eat fish and chips on a Friday. Why is that? Well, it's partly because of the Jewish thing, but it's also to do with Catholicism in particular. So you couldn't eat meat on Friday, but you could eat fish because fish wasn't hot-blooded, basically. Okay, okay, okay. So basically the Bible is the Yeah, reason. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, okay, so haddock. I would go along with that. I, I always order haddock rather than cod. I don't know why, I just I just have from, since a kid. But the batter, okay, this is the make or break for me. What is the correct or the best way or the received way of making proper batter? Well, there isn't a received way because different fryers use different batters. So they're already made batter. So in Leicester, for some reason, the batters are really thick and crunchy, whereas in other places, they're much lighter. And I think it probably depends on how much water you use. I mean, fizzy water, that's the trick, isn't it? Yeah, fizzy water. I'm not yeah. sure the average fish bar uses fizzy water, though. I mean, that would be too expensive. So, the man I know, Lefteris, he says his recipe includes rice flour huh. because I think he said it helps absorb the water, if I remember correctly. So, I, I think it's actually down to personal preference of the fish fry, but also personal okay. taste of the consumer. Actually, when you talk about personal taste and actually being in Leicestershire, when did things like kind of gravy and mushy peas and curry sauce end up on (laughs) fish and chips? All these strange kind of things that suddenly popped up. So mushy peas appear in the early 1920s at the latest. There's a very famous fish and chip manual by someone called, well, his nickname's Chat Chip, the fish fryer in his trade. And he outlines mushy peas by the early 1920s. I mean, did you say gravy? I'd say that's late 20th century. But curry sauce was definitely a thing. I mean, that must be kind of 1970s. Yeah, say. it can't be before then. Probably 1980s. Yeah, or even 80s, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know how that would evolve. I mean, what is it? Is it uh, I've never, ever had it. <laughs> so is it gravy with curry powder in it is, is what I... I don't know, that kind of just generic brown curry sauce that you get. Right. Well, it probably was in the days of kind of Vesta curries. Do you remember could those? Could be, yeah. It could be after that. The interesting thing, though, is we think of it as the most British thing. But, of course, your thesis is correct. It is the food of immigrants, as is all yeah. of our cuisine. This is what makes it interesting. It's an interesting lens from which to view history, something like fish and chips. You can tell a lot about our country and our politics and our class and our society. You could probably deconstruct every meal in the same way. I mean, I've got a PhD student doing the history of the burger in Britain. <laughs> you can interview her if you want. Okay. <laughs> oh, I can put you in touch with her. And then just before I was speaking to you, I was speaking to another student who's doing the history of the afternoon tea for our undergraduate dissertation. And yeah, you can deconstruct all these meals and, you know, look at what's contributed to them and how they've come about and what it tells us about British society. But I I mean, one of the other issues you just mentioned was about class. So you mentioned earlier that you get fish and chips in pubs and so on, and you get Mm -hmm. posh fish and chips as well. Yeah, it's all very chef-y now. 
Yeah. <laughs> Whereas in the early 20th century, well, I don't know, right up until very recently, it's absolutely the food of the working classes. And especially in the earlier 20th century, because it smells funny. That was one of the middle class snobberies towards it. And, you know, the other person who wrote a book about fish and chips, John Morton, his title was Fish and Chips and the British Working Classes, because it is very much associated with the working class. And the reasons they eat is because it's quick nutrition, basically. And it's really important for people carrying out manual work, as we said before, in the early 20th century. It seems to defy class now. It's everyone. Yeah, seems, I guess so. To eat, it has, there's no stigma to eating fish and chips. Really quickly, one more thing that I was wanted to ask you. The idea of newspaper, the idea that you would wrap it up in newspaper to the point where even if you buy it now, they'll have kind of fake newspaper yeah, okay. that looks like newspaper to wrap it up. Is there any origins of that? Like why? I mean, you can understand because it's just a cheap way of wrapping something up. Is there an origin of that? Was there kind of one chippy in particular that did it and it kind of spread? Or? I think it's especially important during World War II because of paper shortages. And then it lingers. Well, it used to be the outer wrapping rather Correct. than you that's right. <laughs> to eat yeah. your, that's your chips off the, <laughs> off the yeah. newsprint. But I mean, I think that's the answer. It's paper shortages in the war, basically. Never seen it for ages, not no, for years and years. It's probably because of health and safety stuff. Probably. <laughs> don't, don't get me started. No, I can understand. It's good. Hey, listen, Panacos, it's been a pleasure. What a fascinating little window into British social history. It's been really, really interesting. The Friars Delight is my local one, but you reckon I should go where? Just around the corner? Well, the one I use when I use the British Library is the North Sea Fish Bar. But I haven't tried the Friars Delight, so I need to try that as well. Yeah, I mean, it's good. It's I, I've just been in this part of London for a thousand years, so it's just always been there. Okay. And when I used to be a dispatch motorcycle rider okay. many, many years ago, that's where I used to stop. Okay. <laughs> It was really good. Thank you very much indeed. You've got some marking to do, so I'm going to let you go and mark someone's. How can you do a PhD about burgers? It's fabulous. I mean, she's talking about Americanization, basically. So, you know, it's different from the fish and chip shop. So the fish and chip shop evolves organically, whereas the burger is imposed from above, is basically what happens. Yeah, we did an interesting um, episode of this about mcdonald's the story of mcdonald's which has been told a lot before you know they did a movie about it and stuff but actually the inside track of that story was absolutely fascinating if you're interested yeah, yeah. and if your phd student's interested they can go and listen to patented thank you very much indeed okay thank you right so there you go i know where i am heading right now the second <laughs> and it's the Theobalds Road if you're enjoying the show don't forget to tell your friends and family don't forget to listen to all our other episodes we've got loads and loads and loads of interesting stories interviews with fantastically wonderful people for you to get your teeth into and as always if you've got a suggestion for a topic you'd like us to cover you can email us at patented at historyhit.com we would love to hear from you Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code Patented at the checkout, you get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.